Former President Donald Trump will surrender in Georgia today on criminal charges that he tried to overturn the 2020 election. It's Thursday, August 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, hours before Trump's court appearance, his 2024 rivals took part in their first debate. Most say they'll back Trump if he's the nominee. That wasn't the case for former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. The conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. Also this hour, the search for more than a thousand people missing after the wildfires in Maui and India's landing of a space probe on the moon and what it means for the future of space exploration. In sports, Red Sox win in extra innings, increasing clouds in the 70s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in to authorities in Georgia today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports he faces a barrage of criminal charges for his alleged attempts to overturn the state's results of the 2020 election. Trump is expected to surrender at the Fulton County Jail a day after the first Republican primary debate, which he skipped. The judge in the case has signed off on an agreement between prosecutors and Trump's legal team to set bond $200,000. The judge also banned Trump from using social media to target his 18 co-defendants as well as any witnesses. The former president is facing 13 criminal counts in Georgia, including racketeering. District Attorney Fonnie Willis has asked the judge to schedule a trial date for March 4th, which is the week before Georgia's Republican presidential primary. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. On Maui, hundreds of fire survivors are continuing to pack aid uh, distribution centers, and many are still trying to figure out short-term housing now two weeks after deadly fires. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports authorities now acknowledge some victims' bodies may never be accounted for. The wildfire that leveled most of Lahaina burned so hot that forensics teams are struggling to even begin to identify some of the human remains they are able to find. Lahaina resident Kurt Hanthorn says he knows of at least seven of his friends who died, but he's expecting to soon learn about many more. It's hard to process, you know, it's hard to focus on what we need, what I, you know, what I need to do every day. Honestly, I got to write a note to remind myself to bathe. Hanthorne says he's tired of all the finger-pointing about who's to blame. He doubts anything could have been done to prevent this in that moment of chaos and hurricane-force winds. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Maui. A key part of the White House's strategy for the U.S.-Mexico border is going on trial. NPR's Joel Rose reports a federal judge in Texas will hear arguments starting today. The case was brought by Texas and other states with Republican attorneys general. They're trying to block a Biden administration policy that has allowed more than 180,000 migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti to enter the U.S. based on a legal authority known as parole. The administration says it's part of a broader strategy to discourage illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border by opening up new legal alternatives. But the states say that's stretching the law too far and accuse the administration of admitting hundreds of thousands of migrants into the U.S. without a solid legal basis. The case is being heard by the same federal judge in South Texas who has previously ruled against the Biden administration in major immigration cases. Joel Rose, NPR News. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. The Dow futures are down a fraction. NASDAQ futures are up 1.1 percent. You're listening to NPR News. 
A court in Moscow has again extended the detention of the Wall Street Journal reporter arrested last spring for another three months. Evan Gerskovich was arrested in March on charges of espionage, but Russian authorities provided no evidence. The FSB intelligence agency filed a request to extend his detention as he awaits trial. The Biden administration and the Kremlin are in talks to find a solution which could involve a prisoner swap, but so far there's apparently been little progress. Japan has started to release water from the damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports the move remains controversial, despite the government's insistence that it is safe. The plant began pumping the water through an underground tunnel into the ocean. The government says it needs to discharge the water because it's running out of room to store it. Both getting rid of the water and decommissioning the plant will take decades. Fukushima fishermen remain staunchly opposed to the release. Some are suing the government to stop it. The government has promised to buy the fishermen's catch if they can't sell it. A recent Kyoto News Agency poll found that more than 40 percent of Japanese are unsure whether to support or oppose the discharge. More than 80 percent say the government hasn't done enough to explain it. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Fukushima, Japan. Rural financial markets, Asian markets were higher by the close. The Nikkei in Japan gained eight-tenths of a percent. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong gained two percent. U.S. futures contracts mixed. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Moore Healy is set to launch a new program today that will give some Massachusetts residents access to free community college. Students who are 25 years and older and have not received a degree are eligible for the new Mass Reconnect program. The state set aside $20 million for the initiative as part of this year's state budget. Officials estimate 8,000 people will qualify. St. Gobain says it will keep working with New Hampshire environmental regulators to clean up problems around its plant in Merrimack. The French manufacturing company announced yesterday it will close the plant. Mara Hoplomazian reports the facility has been at the center of contamination in the area. In 2016, hundreds of wells around Merrimack were found to be contaminated with PFAS, harmful man-made chemicals that St. Cobain has used in their operations. The company installed a multi-million dollar system to treat their emissions in 2021. Lorene Allen is a longtime PFAS advocate with Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water. She says she's glad to see the company go, but watching what will happen next. I just want to be sure that they're still accountable for the mess that they've made and the harm that they've caused and the cost that we bear for our health and also the cost of cleanup and remediation, which is vast. St. Cobain says the closure is part of a larger restructuring effort and eligible employees will be offered other positions or support packages. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. The state is looking at spots in Lowell to house migrants coming into the state. The Healy administration told the Lowell Sun it's considering the UMass Lowell Inn and Conference Center as a possible housing site. City councilors say they want more information from the state on any plans. The governor declared a state of emergency earlier this month because of the wave of migrants, many of them from Haiti and Venezuela. Mass Health administrators are considering whether to cover pregnancy and support care provided by doulas. Doulas are women who don't have formal obstetric training. Allie Rotenberg helps pregnant women with labor and delivery in Berkshire County. She says her work could serve a wider population if insurance covered it. 
it's hard to find clientele that will pay you a fee that can make it so that you can provide for your family and live comfortably. A hearing is scheduled for tomorrow to discuss having the state's Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program cover the services. It's 7.08. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Red Sox beat the Astros 7-5 in 10 innings last night in Houston. The teams will wrap up their series this afternoon. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the mid-70s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 60s. Rain throughout the day tomorrow. There could also be a thunderstorm. The high will be in the lower 70s. There's another chance for showers on Saturday. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faldin. Eight candidates, none of them Donald Trump, met in Milwaukee and debated who among them should be the Republican nominee for president. They are all trailing Trump by double digits. And so all eight tried to make their mark. A newcomer, Vivek Ramaswamy, drew enthusiasm. It's going to take an outsider because for a long time we have professional politicians in the Republican Party who have been running from something. Now is our moment to start running to something, to our vision of what it means to be an American today. Veteran GOP contender Chris Christie, the opposite. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. Christie was, of course, referring to the four times indicted former President Donald Trump. And instead of joining the debate, Trump put on his own show with an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? Should I be doing that? Uh, And a network that isn't particularly friendly to me, frankly. Joining us now is Mark Leibovich, a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's in Milwaukee and was at the debate, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. So you were at last night's debate, and you've made pretty clear in your writings in The Atlantic that you weren't expecting much from a group of candidates largely unwilling to go against Trump, who is their stiffest competition. So what did you think of the debate as you watched it in person last night? Is it what you expected? Um, pretty much it was, it was what I expected as far as I don't think the needle was moved as far as the dynamics of the race. I don't think Trump was hurt terribly, except that he wasn't really mentioned that much. I kind of expected there to be more of an opportunity for the candidates to, to speak critically or, or supportively about him. Um, his name didn't come up as much. Um, I mean, I guess what was striking to me was Vivek Ramaswamy and, and all of the attention he got and garnered. And frankly, he, he just, you know, dominated so much of the stage in a way that I think left a lot of the other candidates trying to kind of scramble to uh, get the oxygen that he already had. So what does that mean for these candidates? I mean, they're trailing Trump by double digits. Uh, After last night's debate, does anything change for them? I, I don't think so. I think Ramaswamy um, probably will get a little bit of a bump. I think Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, um, acquitted herself quite well. I think uh, many people were, I mean, she wasn't, didn't get a lot of um, advance notice. A lot of people weren't sort of looking at her as a key player in the debate. I, I think she really did stick out. I think she probably gave the most both, um, you know, I think spirited you know, critique of Donald Trump, which I think might have been a surprise to people, but also uh, she stood up, I thought, pretty stoutly to, uh, to Brahma Swami and, and acquitted herself quite well. 
Now, you said Trump wasn't mentioned as much as you expected, but was his absence felt? I mean, how did it weigh last night in the debate? <laughs> uh, I think his absence was palpable. I, I think, you know, even when, you know, he's not the topic of discussion, uh, he is the, I mean, to use the cliche, the elephant in the room. And, you know, he's not just ahead by double digits. He's up by you know, high double digits at yeah. this point. I mean, the dynamic of the race is is extremely weighted towards him. And, and especially if he's not there, I mean, it's going to really be very glaring. But if any of these candidates want to be president and be the Republican nominee, they have to first beat Trump. But other than Chris Christie, a vocal critic of Trump who was booed when he did make that criticism last night, we saw others defend him like Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, how are they supposed to win if there is no criticism of their main opponent? You know, that that is that is the question. I mean, I, I think what was most jarring to me and I think to a lot of viewers and, and, and just had a real psychological effect on on the on the performance was every time someone mentioned Trump critically, you, you were always going to hear like a pretty pretty loud chorus of boos from the audience. And, and that has a real chilling effect. I mean, it definitely, no matter how you prepare for a debate or what you anticipate in advance, it, it definitely shapes the dynamic of what you're watching. Uh, you could even tell in sort of looking at Christie when he was getting off some of his sharper lines that, you know, he was not cringing a bit, but but clearly he was not as, um, I think, emphatic as he usually is. So I think that to me tells the whole story. Um, and in the last few seconds, I mean, Trump's decision to sit this one out and do his own thing. Um, how do you think that plays for him and his campaign? I, I don't. I don't think it hurts him at all. I, I think. Look, I think he's playing not to lose at this point. He has a great lead, and um, I don't see this really changing things to his decision last night. Mark Leibovich is a staff writer at the Atlantic. Thank you. Thanks, Leila. Donald Trump drops by the Fulton County Jail in Georgia today. Yeah, and you can expect a few cameras, or more than a few, to capture whatever they can as Trump is booked on 13 felony counts. The former president, who tried to overturn his 2020 election defeat, has denied wrongdoing in his signature repetitive style. They don't even have a case against me. It's not even a case. Everyone says, even the Democrats say, you can't bring these cases, you have no case. There's Trump on X, formerly Twitter. The former president is accused of conspiring with 18 co-defendants to subvert the vote in Georgia, where he lost in 2020. And just to note, uh, many Democrats say you can bring this case in spite of what the former president said there. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has been covering this case for us. Sam, good morning. Hey there, Steve. So how does it go when Trump arrives at jail? Okay, obviously there is no precedent for a former president being booked in a county jail, but we think we'll see a motorcade shepherd Trump to the jail gate. But beyond that, reporters are not allowed inside. Uh, though later, we do expect to see Trump's mugshot like we have so far with some of Trump's 18 co-defendants, lawyers Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. Trump has been indicted four times now, but this mugshot will be his first. I get the impression that the Fulton County Jail is almost a character in this story. Yeah, conditions at the jail are under investigation right now by the U.S. Department of Justice. Defense attorney Bob Rubin told me he has two clients in the facility and both have been awaiting trial for more than two years. They have no opportunities to go outside. There's no sunlight. The jail is smelly, as you can imagine. There's dangerous people in the jail. It's a pretty horrific place, such that I sometimes have nightmares. Of course, Trump will just be processed today, so he won't actually be in there that long. Uh, although some other things may last long, I'm thinking of the fact that this focuses on events from 2020 and 2021, years ago. 
and the trial itself is not in sight. District Attorney Fonnie Willis wants to start the trial in about six months, which would be well before the 2024 election. Can she? Well, every defense attorney that I have talked to has given me a flat out no. Uh, Here's lawyer Jeffrey Brickman. This is not a discussion about people trying to play the system. It simply takes a long time. And I just think that that is wishful thinking. This judge will have to juggle up to 19 defendants plus proceedings in the other court cases Trump's facing. Mm. Jury selection could take a long time, too. And then some defendants are trying to move the case from state to federal court. Why? Well, federal law allows some federal officials charged for conduct under the color of office to remove their cases to federal court. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows attempted it first. Trump is expected to do the same. And Emory Law Professor Jonathan Nash says they might actually prevail. Certainly has some merit. I'll put it that way. It's I don't see it as any kind of frivolous filing. Now, Fulton prosecutors would still argue the case, but in front of a federal judge, the jury would come from a federal court division stretching well beyond Atlanta. But state charges would still be at play, which are not subject to presidential pardon. Hmm, interesting. WABE's Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. The iPhone 15 is likely to launch in the coming weeks, and this next generation could feature a generic charging port for the first time in Apple's history. Hmm. That's because European Union regulators are requiring that all new mobile devices have a standardized connection. And Apple has not been known for doing things in a standard way. They have their own kind of little plug. Constantly buying new things for them. (laughs) Totally, totally. But USB-C is the standard for most new handheld electronic devices except the iPhone. There's no official word from Apple yet, so we will have to wait. So says Terrence Gaines, a certified Apple support specialist based in Atlanta. To continue selling devices in the EU next year, Apple will have to abandon the lightning connector that sat at the bottom of iPhone since 2012 in favor of the USB-C port. Apple's senior vice president for worldwide marketing said last year that the company will comply, but exactly when is still unclear. Gaines and other experts expect the change to come this year. Apple typically does things on their own time frame, but it just makes more sense for them to do it now to just get it over with. Whenever they do it, consumers will benefit. It's reported that the USB-C port will have faster data and charging speeds. And it'll be cheaper, too. The EU estimates the change will save European consumers more than a quarter billion dollars a year on new chargers they won't have to buy. Although, will there be some waste because you'll have these old cords that are no longer useful? Most people who have purchased any sort of handheld, portable, small electronic, like a speaker, like headphones, like earbuds, most of those products have already switched. If USB-C is included in the latest iPhone, you can cut down on the amount of cables you have to carry, which in turn will eventually cut down on the amount of cable waste. Although that also means that if your kids need a cord for their device, they're gonna take yours.
This is NPR News. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, despite protests by China and others, Japan is releasing treated radioactive wastewater from the damaged Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Parasites, cause of human disease, big on the yuck factor. It's easy to think of them as doing no good. But researchers say that's the wrong way to think of these essential creatures. Parasites are really important in ecosystems, and things might work quite differently in their absence and in ways that don't benefit us. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us for that On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clouds move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to a high near 76. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 62. There's a chance of showers overnight, then a rainy Friday with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. We'll have a high near 70. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at z From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Folded. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Kids are already starting to go back to school in much of the country. And that looks different in different places. Last year, a district in Alaska changed its whole calendar so that kids could spend more time learning about the culture and traditions of living off the land. Evan Erickson with our member station KYUK reports. It's an overcast day this summer in the village of Akiachuk on the Kuskokwim River, about 70 miles inland from the Bering Sea. Five elementary school kids are drifting along on a skiff with a couple of adults. Everybody is focused on a series of red and white buoys attached to a net. That red one right there in front of us, it keeps moving. This is the school's summer culture camp, and the kids are learning about traditional Yupik native ways, living in harmony with the land and the values of sharing food, friendship, and knowledge. Today, in the boat with their principal, they're learning to fish for salmon. Populations of several species of salmon on this river have crashed, and this is a rare window when harvesting them with drift nets is allowed. That's a king salmon! I see one! I see one! What's that kind of fish? The Ubeat School District's summer culture camp is part of an effort to help kids master the subsistence lifestyle the Yupik people have practiced for centuries. I want to fish again. This is actually a good spot to fish. On shore, a group of elders shows the students how to process fish at a large cutting table on a patch of grass just off the river. 
The school's literacy coach, Evelyn Esmalko, wields a large, curved, traditional ulu knife and explains the differences between chum, chinook, and sockeye salmon. Put the king shin one and red shin one. This will be for the uh, winter supply of fish supplemented lunch program. After the fish are cleaned, they are loaded into the back of a beat-up truck to be dropped off at the school's walk-in freezer. Riding in back, Woody Woodgate, who works for the school district, says people here favor indigenous foods. And not really taking away anything from the USDA and the school lunch program, but you know, most of that stuff that's on those menus are designed for you know, people in big cities or lower 48. The new calendar the school district adopted to better teach local culture allows kids to participate in subsistence food gathering, like fishing and moose hunting. So if we can supplement using fish and, and moose, and especially fish and moose that the kids catch. The new calendar means the students begin the school year a week later and they finish 10 days earlier. They make up the difference with an extra half hour of instruction each day. When Principal Baron Sample calls Woodgate from the fishing boat, it's clear that the day's salmon fishing activities were a success. Hey, Woody, can you come to the gas station? We'll unload you with what we have and then let the kids go head back up. The UBeat School District is working on other ways to integrate traditional knowledge into core subjects like math and language so kids can continue harvesting educational opportunities. For NPR News, I'm Evan Erickson in Akiachuk, Alaska. In the 1990s, many of the women in rap videos were skinny and scantily clad, but Missy Elliott took a different approach. In her first solo music video, she wore a comically large black bodysuit, inflated like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloon. You want curves? Here are your curves. And the music that she and her partner Timbaland produced was unlike anything out there. Cultural critic Kiana Fitzgerald is looking back at a few of hip-hop's game-changing moments. And today, it's Missy Elliott's 1997 debut album, Super Dupa Fly. When the rain video came out and she was in the inflatable patent leather suit. It was like, what is going on here? Like, who is this woman and where does she come from? As, you know, a black woman of a specific size, I had never seen anything like it. She's made a lot of things possible just with her, her mere presence. And I think that really speaks to how off the wall she and Timbaland were. They were just two, you know, very talented, albeit goofy people who were able to come together and say, you know what, what is everybody doing and how can we not do that? Beep, beep, who got the keys to the Jeep? Vroom. I'm driving to the beach. Top down, loud sound, see my piece. Give them pounds now, look, who it be? It be me, me, me and Timothy. Before Missy Elliott, hip-hop wasn't the most friendly place for women rappers. You know, we had Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown, we had artists that were very popular, but honestly, a lot of their material was focused on, you know, sex, explicit things. They didn't really have much opportunity to exist outside of that. Missy presented herself to the world exactly as she was. A quirky, futuristic feminist who 
you know, if she was talking about sex, she did it in a very, like, coquettish, covert way. You know how I is. So freaking hot that I see it. Gee Get my clothes tailored like I'm Lee's. She loves to inject humor into her work. There's a song called Izzy Izzy Ah, and she's just making up words, <laughs> having a good time. And we're like, oh yeah, I don't know what she's saying, but it sounds good. This is a bop. I like this. That's the kind of world that she lives in. It's not like, you know, I'm just going to be unconventional for the sake of doing it. I'm going to be unconventional because I want to draw you into my orbit, into my planet of off the wall, oddball, unexpected music. She has her her fingerprint on so many careers from a Drake to Ludacris, you know, who is both musically and visually inspired by Missy Elliott. A lot of not just the quote unquote female rap of today, but rap at large is because of Missy being, you know, one of one. I was looking for affection, so I decided to go. That was Kiana Fitzgerald on NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we look at the implications of India's successful landing of a spacecraft on the southern polar region of the moon on the heels of a failed Russian mission to the lunar surface. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia today. Trump is one of 19 people indicted there on charges related to the state's 2020 election results. Trump did not appear at last night's Republican presidential debate in Wisconsin. NPR Sarah McCammon says the eight candidates on stage in Milwaukee were asked if they'd support Trump if he wins the party's nomination in 2024, and six raised their hands in the affirmative. All those hands went up quickly except for former Arkansas Governor Aza Hutchinson and then former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who's been a real critic of Trump, kind of awkwardly shook his fist and then, and then ultimately said he would not support the president in that case. Protesters marched outside the venue of last night's GOP debate. Chuck Kornbach with member station WUWM reports. The grassroots coalition to march on the RNC plans several demonstrations before the Republican National Convention is held in Milwaukee next summer. Wednesday night, the group focused on the GOP presidential debate. Marcher Aurelia Seha says Republican leaders are too conservative. Based on actions that they have taken, legislation that they've put forth. The marchers also promoted reproductive rights and support for labor unions. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party was in the audience for last night's GOP presidential debate in Milwaukee. Amy Carnevale says Donald Trump's absence was an opportunity for other presidential hopefuls. I think it was also a chance with Donald Trump not on the stage for Americans to hear from 
the other candidates in the race. Certainly, we know what Donald Trump's position is on a, on a range of issues, and this was a chance for us to hear from the others. Like most of the candidates, Carnevale says she plans to support whichever candidate Republican voters choose as their nominee. That includes Trump, regardless of whether he's convicted in a series of cases against him. Several health care providers are working with Boston officials on plans for a regional health campus on Long Island in Boston Harbor. The providers toured the island with city leaders yesterday to talk about plans for services to deal with addiction, mental health and homelessness. More now from WBUR's Deborah Becker. The providers visited some of the 11 buildings on the island that the city wants to renovate for the new campus. They say they're working with the city to figure out what specific services will be offered. Sarah Porter is executive director of Victory Programs, whose services on the island were shuttered when the bridge to Long Island was closed nine years ago because it wasn't safe. It's a privilege to be part of an organization and part of a team of providers, part of a city, part of an administration that values Long Island as a resource for the public health good of our city. Boston expects to begin offering services there once the bridge to the island is rebuilt in about four years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Investigators on the vineyard say the drowning death of former President Barack Obama's personal chef was an accident. Tafari Campbell drowned last month while paddleboarding at Edgartown Great Pond. State investigators say Campbell's death was not suspicious. The Obamas say Campbell was a beloved part of their family. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Red Sox beat the Astros in extra innings last night. The final in Houston was 7-5 to five in 10 innings. Red Sox closer Kenley Jansen left in the bottom of the ninth with what the team said was hamstring tightness. It's unclear how long he might be out. The Sox and Astros will wrap up their series this afternoon. Highs in the mid-70s today, and it'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. Cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the low 60s, a chance of rain overnight, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. We'll have highs near 70. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Japan began releasing water from the damaged Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. That happened today. The plant was crippled a dozen years ago when an earthquake and tsunami caused reactors to melt down. The government says the water it's discharging now has been treated to remove most of the radioactive material, making it safe. But as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Fukushima Prefecture, the release remains controversial. Just as the plant began releasing the water, fishermen were auctioning their catch at a port to the north. Fisherman Haruo Ono says his catch this morning was good. He says local fish commands a good price in the fish markets of Tokyo. He's concerned that the price will fall after the water's released. 
We've been protecting the oceans since the time of our ancestors, and we must continue to do so in future. Ono says the government has abandoned Fukushima's fishermen. He and his colleagues are suing the government to stop the release. Fukushima folks didn't do anything wrong. It was the government that came here and built the nuclear plant. Who uses the electricity? Tokyo. In a meeting with fisheries representatives on Monday, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida assured them of the government's support, including buying their catch if they can't sell it. We'll continue taking necessary measures, he said, to ensure fisher folk can continue their activities with peace of mind. And we pledge to continue doing so even if the water release takes a long time. It's expected to take decades, which could be a very long time for Fukushima residents to wait. Kunpei Hayashi, an agriculture expert at Fukushima University, says that in pre-industrial times, Fukushima locals would head to Tokyo to find work in winter, as there wasn't much to do at home. Since the Fukushima nuclear plant was built in 1967, Hayashi says, the local economy became reliant on it and the government subsidies it brought. He says this might be a good time to reconsider it. The turning point this will be a turning point in the history of building one nuclear power plant after another for the big city of Tokyo. Supermarket owner Takashi Nakajima has watched as Fukushima's landscape has changed since the disaster. Seawalls have gone up to protect against future tsunamis, and buildings have moved back from the shore. But he says the big changes here are in people's mindsets. For the first time, we were forced to think that the life we've lived since the time of our ancestors could easily be destroyed or changed. It makes us feel a kind of impermanence. Our trust and happiness in relying on our hometown has been destroyed. Nakajima says that despite the government's assurances, locals don't really have enough information to decide whether the water discharge is safe or not. A recent Kyoto News Agency poll found that 44% of Japanese are unsure whether to support or oppose the release. 82% say the government hasn't done enough to explain it. Nakajima's grandniece, 12-year-old Nozomi Sanpei, says she's against it. It would be bad if people catch those fish, eat them, and become victims. And what can I say? I feel sorry for the fish. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Fukushima, Japan. More than two weeks after Maui's deadly wildfire, 115 people have been confirmed dead. But more than 1,000 are still unaccounted for. Family members are desperate to find out if their loved ones survived. Some are flying to Hawaii to post missing signs and scour hotels. They say it's a frustrating process. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is in Maui and joins us now to talk about this. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. So a thousand people, that means a thousand families still searching for their relatives. What are you hearing from those families that still don't know if their loved ones died in this fire? Yeah. Well, our producer, Kira Wakeem, spoke with Kimberly Buin. She's a native Hawaiian who lives in California, and she's been trying to get information on her dad, Maurice. He lived in senior housing. He has diabetes. Um, a couple of days before the fire, they talked about how his foot was swollen. Now, Buin says relatives in Hawaii have sent DNA samples to help make a match with any remains. And she's been calling multiple agencies for any updates all the time, she says, and finds the lack of information upsetting. 
what is it, 14, 15 days, and I feel like I've done more work looking for my dad than any of these people that say they're there to help. Now, the Maui police and FBI have acknowledged there is frustration and confusion. At a news conference Tuesday, they said their list of the missing has been compiled by multiple agencies. There's not a lot of information for some people on it, and they're working to verify things and make the list as accurate as possible. Also, officials have not released the names on this list, but they say they will soon. And there is a separate Facebook site that's been crowdsourced and is naming people. Now, at one point, this list was twice as long. So obviously some people have found their family members. What do they say? Yes. Well, they say this process also can be a bit chaotic. Mm -hmm. Um, Dana Condry just found her brother Monday. She also lives in California, but after getting nowhere with phone calls, she decided to come to Hawaii on Sunday. She went to a family assistance center that's been set up. She put a sign up about her brother. She spoke face to face with a Red Cross official. And that very night, that same Red Cross person called to say they had found her brother. It turned out he'd been sleeping on a beach and had no working cell phone. So it was really great news. But the Red Cross had actually placed him in that hotel three days earlier. And I go, well, why weren't we informed? Every day we call you guys looking for him. Every day. Have you checked in anywhere? I need the hotel. Every day. And nothing. And there was more confusion. After this, two different people at the Red Cross called Condry to ask about her brother because they had no idea she'd already found him. Uh, in a statement to NPR, the Red Cross says they go to great lengths to match people, but reunification can take time, and they get the permission of the person they find before they contact any family member. So a story of confusion that ended with something good. He was alive. and But that's mm -hmm. not the only story we've heard about that kind of confusion. NPR has already reported on a family who found their deceased son in their home, took his body to the police station, only to have police tell NPR later that they hadn't had anyone come to them with a body. Right, right. This is a story our colleague Vanessa Romo reported. The family was told someone would be in touch once the boy could be released to a funeral home, but for 13 days they had no idea where the body was. Very painful. Wednesday, Maui police finally confirmed they had gotten his body, but meanwhile, Layla, all this time, the boy's family had been getting calls from different officers asking if they'd seen their son so that police could take him off their unaccounted for list. That's NPR's Jennifer Ludden reporting on so much confusion, so much pain. Thank you so much for your reporting, Jennifer. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Thursday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, Russian mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is presumed dead in a plane crash that's widely suspected to be an assassination. It'll grow cloudy today and will be in the mid-70s, low 60s tonight, and there's a chance of rain overnight. Showers and thunderstorms are likely tomorrow. It'll be around 70. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably 
at Zevin.com. A new housing development could soon be under construction along the Malden River in Everett. The Boston-based development firm Proponent V10 is asking the city's planning board to approve the nearly 600-unit development. The Boston Business Journal reports it would be built on an area that is now mostly parking lots for the Encore Boston Hotel and Casino. Lexington-based Agenis is laying off 91 employees. That's about one-quarter of its workforce. Agenis has not said how many of the workers are based in Massachusetts. The cuts come as the biotech narrows its development down to just two drugs. If you're thinking about taking a sick day from work today, you aren't alone. Today, August 24th, is the date American workers most often call out. That's according to a new study by Flamingo, a firm that helps companies manage employee absences. The reason for the uptick is not clear, but most people claimed a stomach bug as the reason they couldn't make it into work. The second most common date is February 13th, right after the Super Bowl and right before Valentine's Day. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One common signal of a rising nation is a moonshot. The United States put people on the moon during the Cold War. Now, that exact thing has not happened since, but China has sent spacecraft there, and now India has accomplished something that no other country has done. Soft landing on the moon. India is on the moon. It successfully landed a spacecraft near the moon's south pole, a largely uncharted region. Let's talk this over with Jill Stewart, a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics who specializes in the politics and ethics of space exploration. Welcome to the program. Good morning. What did you think about as you observed this news? I have to say, I usually try to stay kind of objective, but I felt quite excited watching the the celebrations. And I think this is a really big step for the Indian space program. And why so? Because this is the first time that we have landed on the South Pole. A lot of countries have what we call remotely delivered objects onto the moon, essentially crashed them into the moon. But there's another technical capability when you do a soft landing. And it's also big news for science. We should be able to learn things about, for example, whether or not there's water on the moon of, of, in substantial sources that could sustain future missions there. I, I like the use of we, as you said it there. We, we, we have landed on the South Pole. You mean we as human beings. You're not speaking as a nationalist there but as a person. I do, actually, and that was a slip of the tongue, really, because this is an achievement for India. But I think that's one of the interesting things about space, is that it taps into these two sides of our sort of humanity, this sense of, of our collectiveness, but also there's a really underbelly of, of politics and nationalism. And India certainly will be using this for propaganda purposes. Countries always do that with space exploration programs. Of course, we had Russia crash on the, um, on the South Pole of the moon last week. And so there are definitely political implications 
but I think we can also see it as more of a collective scientific progress at the same time. There's a tension there, which is interesting. Was there something of a rivalry to be the first on the South Pole then? I think absolutely so. So Russia's program was uh, in planning stages for years. So there was a much longer timeline. And I think it's interesting that once India was imminently going to be landing, Russia then put their probe up, which was on a much faster time scale. Theirs only took a week to get there, but it meant that they were overlapping potentially within days or even hours to land in a similar part of the moon. So I think you can't deny that there was at least some level of rivalry there. So the Indians ended up with the more successful landing. Um, do they have plans to follow this up by sending people into space? Eventually, yes. I think India would very much like to become one of the even more elite group of countries that have placed humans in Earth. There is kind of a, a scale of, of countries' abilities in space, and they do have plans to join that, that group. Does it really show when you, when you uh, succeed in space exploration that you are a technologically advanced nation? I think so. Countries have long used it for that reason, and that's because it demonstrates that you have a strong economy, that you have a strong political capabilities, and all of the technology that we have up there has a military subtext. So rockets that carry satellites could carry missiles. And it is very difficult. We can see that through failed missions, such as even Russia, that has a lot of experience in this, had a crash last week. So yes, the technology really is that difficult. Jill Stewart, visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, it may be getting easier for schools to get reimbursed by Medicaid for special education services, potentially returning millions of dollars to districts. It's 7.49. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Former President Trump says he'll surrender himself in Georgia this afternoon on charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election. The leader of a Russian mercenary group who led a failed coup in that country is presumed dead following a plane crash yesterday. Japan has started releasing treated water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean today, despite strong opposition from China. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. CY Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Closes September 4th, ICABoston.org. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. It'll gradually grow overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-70s, low 60s tonight with a chance of showers overnight, then rain and maybe a thunderstorm tomorrow. It'll be around 70. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Arkansas Department of Education pulled course credit for advanced placement African-American studies. The department said it is reviewing the course for possible indoctrination. Here's Josie Lenora from our member station KUAR in Little Rock. Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders went on Fox News to explain her administration's decision to deprioritize AP African-American studies. We cannot perpetuate a lie to our students and push this propaganda leftist agenda, teaching our kids to hate America and hate one another. Sanders has not pointed to anything specific in the AP African-American curriculum, The Arkansas Department of Education notified teachers that they deleted the course code for AP African-American Studies. That means students can't get graduation credit for taking it. The governor's alma mater, Little Rock Central High School, is known for its robust AP offerings. That's where senior Jack Baker took the pilot course last school year. He says it's a straightforward history class, which encourages students to think about different ideas. We were offered alternative perspectives, and we were not told that this was somehow, like, immediately correct. It was more discussion-based and like viewpoint-oriented. The class was also a positive experience for senior Sarah Tarawali. She said she never felt hatred towards America while studying the course. She said she enjoyed learning about different historical figures like Sojourner Truth and local civil rights activist Daisy Bates. Showing up to class, it made it fun, it made it easy because you were learning about something you've never learned before. It wasn't just book work. It wasn't just talking about history. It was something that engaged everyone. The pilot AP African-American Studies curriculum has four units, starting with ancient Africa, covering the slave trade, the Civil War, and finishing with the Civil Rights Movement. Last year, 60 schools across the country offered the pilot course to students. This year, the class is expanding to hundreds more. Democratic State Senator Linda Chesterfield said she did not have a Black history class when she was growing up in a segregated school, So when she became a teacher, she had to incorporate African-American history into her social studies curriculum on her own. She says she wanted all of her students to feel included in U.S. history. White kids, black kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids all need to know what a wonderful role they have played in the development of this country. She asked Arkansas Education Secretary Jacob Oliva to explain the decision to scrap the AP African-American Studies course. I sent this text to Secretary Oliva, and I asked him very simply, why doesn't my history count? And his response was, we're working on getting some information together on that. The Arkansas Department of Education echoed this in a statement. They said they are reviewing the class materials to see if they contain so-called critical race theory or indoctrination. The College Board, which offers the AP class, says there's nothing in any of its courses that is about indoctrination. Brandy Waters helped design the AP African American Studies course. It's still a young discipline, even though it's been around for about 70 years. What we're really trying to do is to showcase how much has been discovered by this field since its inception and to prepare students to see that broader world through their own perspectives. Six schools that plan to offer the pilot course this year said they will still do so, but only as a local elective and not as an official AP class. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock. All but one of the 21 richest countries in the world require paid vacation for every worker. Bakers, doctors, train operators, everyone. The U.S. is the only one of these countries that doesn't. It does not guarantee a single day of paid vacation. Sarah Gonzalez with our Planet Money podcast tried to understand why. 
half of the people in the U.S. who are lucky to get paid vacation from their employers don't even take it all. And there's a theory that Americans work so much because of the Protestant work ethic that idleness is ungodly. Yeah, but come on now, Protestant ethic, I get that all the time. And yet, where did the Protestant ethic originate? This is Daniel Hammermesh. In Switzerland with the Calvinists, okay? And yet the Swiss get a lot of public holidays. They get four or five weeks of paid vacation. So the ultimate Protestant ethic people are taking a lot of time off also. Daniel is a labor economist at the University of Texas at Austin, and he feels very strongly about how we spend time. For him, this is the ultimate economic choice we make. Because in our lives, we combine time with money. Money and time go together, and one of them is always scarce for you. Daniel says the model economic person maximizes utility or, you know, happiness, not just by having money to spend, but also having time to spend that money. And for Daniel, the Protestant work ethic argument doesn't fly because in 1979, the U.S. worked about the same amount on average as other rich countries, Canada, Australia, France. It's just after 1979, all of those rich countries started sharply cutting their work hours, but not the U.S. If you do the math, Daniel says people in Europe work about an hour and a half less every day. That's a huge amount in economic terms. It's the equivalent of one day off a week. Right. That's Friday. And Daniel says the only reason the U.S. works more is the U.S. takes less vacation. And to try to understand why, I went to Tom Cohen at MIT, who ah, left a lake house during vacation to do this interview. So you're a workaholic also, like the rest of us. Uh, guilty as charged. Tom studies work and unions, and he says there was a time when the U.S. could have gotten something like guaranteed paid vacation in the 1930s when we got the minimum wage and overtime and Social Security. But Tom says some unions actually kind of drew a line at vacation. There's also a view among unions that we don't necessarily have to push for all of these things uh, through legislation, because then if we did, then people might say, well, why do I need a union? Oh, so this is like a known thing that means? Absolutely. This is one of the interpretations for how things went down back then. The big benefits, vacation, pension, healthcare, were left off the table. And Tom says that's the culprit because we have to negotiate with our employers for these benefits and for wages. And so you have to trade off wages for another day of vacation, wages for improvement in uh, pension. And so when you do have to negotiate for health insurance pension, asking for vacation kind of falls to the bottom of the list. Yeah, it's a much lower priority. In Europe, you get vacation, pension, and health care from the government, not employers. So maybe the U.S. prioritizes work over vacation because we need money to pay for health care and pensions. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. Take the rest of the hour off. I'm Steve Inskeep. Increasing clouds today in the mid-70s. Overcast and low 60s tonight. Rain possible overnight. Then showers and thunderstorms are likely tomorrow. We'll have temperatures around 70. Saturday, partly sunny in upper 70s with a chance of showers. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender to Georgia authorities today on charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election results. It's Thursday, August 24th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, most of Trump's rivals for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination said at the first debate last night that they would support his candidacy. Also, the Russian mercenary leader who led a failed coup in that country two months ago may have died yesterday in a plane crash. Right after the mutiny when it happened, uh, everybody was saying Prigozhin is a dead man walking. This is really a matter of time. And this hour, Boston officials are outlining plans for a new public health campus on Long Island. What we're looking to do is is truly reimagine and think about what we can do differently going forward to make sure we actually have a coordinated system of care. Increasing clouds in the 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail later today. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler reports Trump faces 13 felony counts for an alleged effort to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. In some ways, Trump will be like every other defendant who stepped foot into the Fulton County Jail. He'll be formally arrested, fingerprinted, and processed after being charged last week. But the former president, who is under Secret Service protection, also was expected to have a booking photo taken, the first one in the four different indictments he's received in the last few months. After upstaging the GOP presidential debate last night by refusing to attend, Trump's visit to Atlanta is expected to dominate headlines again, with his arrival expected to coincide with evening primetime television viewing hours. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. One high school fully reopens today in the Maui town of Lahaina, where at least 115 people died in a wildfire earlier this month. Meanwhile, NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports more places are offering temporary housing to survivors. In addition to hotels, the county says landlords and property owners across the state have stepped up. They've offered 900 houses, apartments or rooms for wildfire survivors to rent. A new Maui bus route also starts Thursday. It will take evacuees between hotels and a shopping mall. A lot of people lost their cars in the fire and they have found travel difficult. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reporting. Schools across the country are leaving millions, perhaps billions, of federal dollars on the table. That's money that could help tens of millions of children, including kids with disabilities. Emily Harris reports on the findings of a new NPR investigation. The money comes from Medicaid, which covers many health needs for students with disabilities and students from low-income families. Last year, schools got a total of $6.6 billion. Medicaid officials say they could be getting much more, but many schools say the reimbursement process has been too cumbersome to be worthwhile. Now Medicaid has simplified things. Deputy Administrator Dan Tsai hopes this will get more money into schools. 
you're talking about things on the order of magnitude of billions. First, though, states have to update their Medicaid policies. So far, at least 22 states have at least partially done so. For NPR News, I'm Emily Harris. The head of the Wagner mercenary group, Zevgeny Prigozhin's name was found on the passenger list of a plane that crashed with no survivors north of Moscow. But there is no confirmation that he is dead. Russian state media says 10 bodies were recovered. This just months after Prigozhin launched a mutiny against Russia's military leadership. President Vladimir Putin relies on the Wagner group to supplement Russian troops in his war against Ukraine. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. The Biden administration is proposing a new national marine sanctuary off the California coast. It's the first to be spearheaded by a Native American tribe. And Piers Lauren Summer has more. The ocean off central California is known for rich kelp forests and marine life. It also holds sacred sites for the Chumash Nation. Almost 10 years ago, tribal members proposed it for a new marine sanctuary. The Biden administration has now released a final proposal for more than 5,000 square miles of ocean, the final step before its creation. The sanctuary would be co-managed with tribal members, part of a growing push the administration is making to restore indigenous management on public lands. The proposal would also allow for underwater transmission cables, which could be needed as California pushes to build offshore wind farms. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Japan is releasing its first batch of treated radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean today from the Fukushima nuclear power plant that was destroyed by a tsunami in 2011. Video from the Tokyo Power Company showed a staff member turning on a seawater pump, marking the start of a controversial project that's projected to last for decades. China isn't happy and has already said it won't buy Japanese seafood. Another day of excessive heat and humidity is blanketing the central part of the country from the Midwest to the Gulf Coast. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings and heat watches for parts of nearly two dozen states, affecting more than 130 million people. Dow futures are trading lower, down one-tenth of a percent. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Logan Airport will get nearly $45 million in federal funding to improve safety. The money from the FAA will be used to redesign some of the airport's taxiways. The goal is to reduce the risk of collisions between planes on the ground. There was a close call at Logan earlier this year between a JetBlue plane and a private jet. The FAA is also working with the airports in Worcester and Martha's Vineyard to find ways to avoid those close calls. There's a new member of the Boston School Committee. Mayor Michelle Wu appointed Chantal Lima Barbosa. She's the first Cape Verdean woman to serve on the board and is a BPS graduate. She also worked in the city's Office of Neighborhood Services with the Dorchester and Cape Verdean communities. Lima Barbosa will fill the role until the start of next year. Researchers from across New England are trying to understand the cause and possible effects of an unusually large algae bloom. It's in the Gulf of Maine. And as Murray Carpenter reports, at its peak, the bloom extended from Martha's Vineyard to Penobscot Bay. The bloom is comprised of a naturally occurring phytoplankton that's not toxic to humans or animals. University of New Hampshire scientists first noticed the bloom in April when they recorded the lowest carbon dioxide and highest pH levels in their 20 years of monitoring. Nicole Poulton of Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences says it's hard to know what's causing it, but the rapidly warming waters of the Gulf of Maine could be playing a role. We do know the Gulf is changing quite rapidly, 
And it could be a variety of things, both the increasing temperatures in the Gulf of Maine, increased rainfall into the Gulf of Maine as well. One concern is the possibility that the algae will deplete oxygen in parts of the Gulf when it dies and decomposes. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Murray Carpenter. The town crier in Provincetown has been named the best town crier in the country. Daniel gomez Yada is the champion of this year's American Guild of Town Criers Virtual Championship. Yada was named official town crier for Provincetown in 2020. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox beat the Astros 7-5 in 10 innings last night in Houston. The teams will play the finale of their series this afternoon. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the mid-70s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 60s. Rain throughout the day tomorrow. There could also be a thunderstorm. The high will be in the lower 70s. There's another chance for showers on Saturday. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. As with so much in Russia, we have no definitive word on the fate of the Russian mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. He was listed as a passenger on a small jet that crashed yesterday northwest of Moscow. That's the voice of an eyewitness watching the plane literally fall from the sky in a video posted on Russian state media. But was Prigozhin actually on the plane? NPR's Charles Maines is following events from Moscow. Charles, welcome. Hi. What are the facts so far as they are known? Well, first of all, we know about the flight path. The radar shows the business jet heading from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and then a little over 30 minutes into the flight, uh, the plane suddenly starts to fall from the sky, uh, as we heard in that clip here in your intro. Uh, Russian aviation authorities say there were 10 passengers listed on board, among them Yevgeny Prigozhin, and rescue teams say they've found 10 bodies. Uh, Meanwhile, the crash site's been sealed off. Uh, The bodies of the victims are apparently moved to a local morgue this morning. What we don't have is any official statement IDing Prigozhin's body or confirming his actual death, uh, just as we don't have uh, any confirmation of what caused the crash. And both those factors have fueled all sorts of rumors and conspiracy theories. Uh, That said, many of Prigozhin's supporters uh, seem to think he's indeed gone. A makeshift memorial appeared outside the Wagner Center in St. Petersburg last night. Many people would wonder how Prigozhin thought he could be safe anywhere in the borders uh, of Russia and certainly how he could be safe traveling around. Yeah, because he has certainly had a lot of enemies, uh, both in Ukraine, let's not forget that, and within Russia, the Russian military in particular. You know, Prigozhin criticized and insulted the top brass publicly. And I don't think there's any question they hated him for it. Uh, but the source of Prigozhin's power and protection had always been his relationship, real or perceived, with President Vladimir Putin. Um, until Prigozhin mutinied. Well, right. And, and Putin publicly ultimately endorsed this deal that offered Prigozhin amnesty and life in exile in Belarus in exchange for ending the mutiny. And there was a sense here that Prigozhin, while a lesson figure politically, was being allowed to tidy up affairs and kind of plan his next chapter. You know, he was in St. Petersburg to close down his media holdings. He apparently met with African officials about Wagner's future role there. So there was a sense that he'd made amends and his ability to travel in Russia seemed to prove it. But one of the other takeaways uh, from the rebellion was that Putin looked rather weak. You know, Prigozhin had challenged his authority and gotten away with it. And certainly that narrative now changes significantly, uh, whatever happened to that plane. 
What happens now to the Wagner Group, which has been so important to Russian military fortunes in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world? Well, there's been a growing sense that Putin was interested in maintaining Wagner as a fighting force and less in keeping Prigozhin as its leader. Uh, Putin's spokesman said as much uh, when he recounted a meeting between the Russian president and Wagner rebels, including Prigozhin, in the Kremlin in the days after the mutiny. Uh, yet this plane crash appears to have taken the lives of not only Prigozhin, but other top Wagner commanders, which means Wagner is effectively now decapitated as an organization. Although doesn't it still have thousands or even tens of thousands of uh, armed men and women? It does. And and if the past is any lesson, those mercenaries have been fiercely loyal to Prigozhin. You know, think back to that rebellion. Prigozhin told them to march on this southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don and seize a military base. They did it. Told them to march on Moscow. Off they went and then retreat. Again, they followed. No questions asked. And in the wake of this crash, we've seen prominent Wagner social media channels declaring that Prigozhin was killed by, quote, enemies of Russia. You know, my question is, who do the mercenaries think that enemy is? And what do they now do about it? And Pierre's Charles Maines in Moscow, thanks as always for your careful reporting. Thank you. Sean McFate is following the plane crash and the aftermath. He's an expert on mercenary groups and a professor at National Defense University here in the United States. Mr. McFate, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. Let's pick up where Charles Maines left off. He talked about the loyalty of the thousands of Wagner mercenaries. Were they personally loyal to Yevgeny Prigozhin? Most of them were not. They're loyal to the paycheck. They're mercenaries. Okay. Does that mean that anyone else in Russia can now pick up as long as they're paying the money and command that force? Not really. I mean, it, probably what's going to happen is that somebody within the Wagner organization will step up and take a Prigozhin CEO slot, but with who's more respectful of Putin and has Putin's blessing. Uh, because the, the Wagner wasn't just a, you know, one guy in charge of a lot of different individuals. It had some hierarchy and et cetera. So I think we'll see some replacement like that. But will this firm continue at all? Because, of course, part of the controversy that turned Prigozhin against Vladimir Putin was a move to essentially take away his soldiers, take away his troops, and enroll them in the regular Russian military. Um, it'll continue. It may not have the name Wagner. Um, you know, but when... Prigozhin marched on Moscow, and then when Putin blew out, you know, Prigozhin's plane from the air, likely, this is how mercenaries and masters negotiate, because there's no court of law. They do it through force. We've seen this throughout history. Um, and I think that Putin needs a force like Wagner in Africa to carry out Russia's interests there, which is basically creating juntas in Africa that are not Western-facing, but Moscow-facing, and extracting gold and other minerals to fuel the war in Ukraine. Hmm. What do you think would have made Yevgeny Prigozhin think that he could continue moving around Russia safely? I think Prigozhin, no, he's not like Navalny. He's not a political opponent that you can safely lock into jail and forget about forever. He's a man with an army at his back. He's more like, you know, Julius Caesar or Marius from ancient Rome. And that makes him very political. But we've also known from history like Xenophon and ancient Greece that as soon as a mercenary leader leaves the protection of his mercenaries, perhaps via corporate jet, he's vulnerable. And, um, you know, and, and he overstepped many boundaries. So it's, it's a great question in the category of what was he thinking? 
Do you imagine, and I guess we just have to say we're imagining here, we don't know about the private conversations, but do you imagine that Putin himself might personally have assured Prigozhin, don't worry, you're fine, it's all good, we'll work this out over time? Putin is an old-school Machiavellian tyrant, and Prigozhin has a huge ego. So that's a completely uh, reasonable hypothetical assumption. Uh, you think that, that Putin himself might have lured this man into a false sense of security is what you're saying? This is Putin's a guy who goes and assassinates, you know, former KGB agents from the 1980s and their daughters in UK just for vendettas. So yes, I think he's a very vengeful man. He's an old-fashioned strong man, and he's sent all of Russia and all of the world a message with this plane that yeah, I'm the guy in charge, and if you're going to go out the king, you best not miss. Okay, one other thing to wrap up here. We've talked about Prigozhin and Putin. We've talked about the Wagner Group's soldiers. We've talked about the Wagner Group's influence in West Africa. There is finally the question of Ukraine, where the Wagner Group seemed for a while to be uh, the most effective or least ineffective fighting force that the Russians have. Can the Wagner Group still be a significant player within Ukraine? It can. Um, its role will change slightly. So the Wagner Group is actually two groups, an old guard and a new guard. The old guard came in with Dmitry Ukin, a former special forces officer who was also killed supposedly on this plane. Mm. And they're recruited from pretty high-end um, elements like paratroopers and special forces. And the new guard was dumped out of jails last summer um, to become cannon fodder in places like eastern Ukraine. And their purpose is simply to, to die. Uh, and the old guard and new guard hate each other. And the old guard is mostly in Africa, and the new guard is mostly in Ukraine and Belarus. And they still, Russia still needs cannon fodder because this is part of the Russian way of war. If you look back at Stalingrad, for example. So they'll still be there, but they'll be under the command of the Russian Ministry of Defense. Gotcha. Sean McFate, author of The Modern Mercenary. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Defendants in the Georgia election interference case have been turning themselves in at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta this week. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to be booked there today. His former lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, have already been booked in Georgia. The Fulton Jail itself is overcrowded and dilapidated. And as Shemaine Cruz from member station WABE reports, it's also under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. Last month, Kristen Clark with the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department said it's looking at living conditions at the Fulton County Jail. People held in jails and prisons do not surrender their constitutional and civil rights at the jailhouse door. The inquiry started after an independent autopsy found that 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson died in his cell covered in bedbugs. He had been arrested on a misdemeanor charge just three months earlier. Those circumstances were far from isolated. Following Mr. Thompson's death, evidence emerged that the mental health unit where he died was infested with insects and that the majority of people living in that unit were malnourished and not receiving basic care. The jail was built for about 1,100 inmates, but now holds 3,600. According to Clark, 87% of the jail population is black, and the vast majority have not been convicted. They are awaiting bail hearings or are unable to post bail. And a third of individuals in the jail likely have mental health issues, says Alton Adams. He's the county's chief operating officer for the jail. 
arguably, if you were to pull one lever to be able to say, can we find a place for those individuals to be dealt with, treated in a different way that solves the problem long term because we know jail isn't the right place. Six people have died at the jail this year. In March, Georgia's Chief Justice Michael Boggs blamed judicial backlog for some of the overcrowding. And advocacy groups have called for diversion programs instead of incarceration. But Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt says the county needs a new jail. It's a human crisis. And I have been begging for the resources for 887 days. I'm really, really tired of begging for money to do my job. This was at a county commission meeting. The county has spent more than $5 million this year to improve conditions and is looking to fund a new jail at a cost of about $1.6 billion. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta. This is NPR News. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we recap last night's first Republican presidential primary debate. Eight candidates were on stage in Milwaukee, but not frontrunner former President Donald Trump. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART a fusion of Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality from playwright Inua Elams. Start September 8th, amrep.org. Parasites, cause of human disease, big on the yuck factor. It's easy to think of them as doing no good, but researchers say that's the wrong way to think of these essential creatures. Parasites are really important in ecosystems, and things might work quite differently in their absence and in ways that don't benefit us. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us for that On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clouds move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to a high near 76. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 62. There's a chance of showers overnight. Then a rainy Friday with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms will have a high near 70. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From EBSCO, supporting open-source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at EBSCO.com. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Public schools are leaving millions of federal dollars on the table. It's money they could be getting from Medicaid. That program covers more than 42 million low-income children and kids with disabilities. Now, a major change could make it easier for schools to get more money to help those kids, but only if their states act. From Portland, Oregon, Emily Harris reports on the findings of a new NPR investigation. Ready? Set. It's a Monday in May, and Winnie Hoyt should be in school. But her mother, Jenny Eckert Hoyt, has taken her to a local clinic for speech therapy. Can you koala bear me? Yeah. Winnie was born with a rare genetic disorder. 
Now seven years old, she needs someone to dress and feed her. She uses a wheelchair and doesn't speak. We've got the good room with the couch. Jenny holds Winnie close while speech-language pathologist Stephanie Crawford sets up a special screen. It looks sort of like an iPad, but it gives Winnie a superpower. And so here I'm selecting eye gaze. If she can look at a certain spot on the screen, she'll turn on a song with her eyes. I'm going to do the first one. <laughs> yep. Then it's Winnie's turn. It stopped. We need more. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This device is called an eye gaze. This guy. Even if right now Winnie is just turning on a song, Jenny hopes this tool will eventually give her daughter a way to express her interests and to make choices, like picking out an outfit for school or answering multiple choice questions. Our biggest goal right now is to get Winnie her yes-no. The communication skills the eye gaze can unlock are critical for Winnie's educational future. To master the technology, she needs a lot of practice. Thank you. But Jenny says Winnie gets only about 30 minutes a week with the eye gaze at school. Because of her disability, Winnie qualifies for Medicaid, so the federal agency could pay to help her get more eye gaze time at school. Jenny would love nothing more. We wish that the eye gaze could be hammered every day, all day. But because of the way Medicaid works, Winnie's district, Portland Public Schools, would have to cover the cost and then ask for reimbursement. And the district used to do that, but it quit billing Medicaid for almost all services years ago, saying the burdensome process was not worth it. In an email to NPR last spring, the district said the cumbersome billing, quote, took time away from providing critical and time-sensitive services in schools. This is a very common complaint. It's one top Medicaid officials have heard from large and small districts around the country. You have to bill for healthcare services in the same way that a doctor's office would bill. Dan Sai directs the federal program that runs Medicaid in schools. And most schools, especially smaller schools, under-resourced schools, rural schools, don't happen to have a medical expert coder sitting around. Instead, many schools pay out of pocket for whatever health services they provide, many of which are mandated by federal law for children with disabilities. But the federal government has never paid its promised share of that mandate. Tsai says by not tapping into Medicaid more, schools are missing out on helping millions of kids. He and his team want to make it easier for the feds to chip in. So they announced major changes this year, a significant overhaul of school Medicaid billing, along with a new technical assistance center with experts to help. Tsai thinks this could be a funding game changer. You're talking about things on the order of magnitude of billions. Potentially billions more than what schools are getting now. Some schools have figured out how to manage the complicated billing. And last year, those schools recouped a total of $6.6 billion from federal and state Medicaid programs. CPS, on average, I would say receives 35 to $40 million a year. Chicago Public Schools has a director of Medicaid on staff, Katherine Yeager. This is something we focus very diligently on because all of those dollars are dollars we invest in the students and health services. After this year's changes, Yeager expects Chicago schools will now recoup even more from Medicaid. And this is still a little back of the envelope, but up to about $10 million additional dollars annually. That's for services they're already providing. For example, nurses managing medications for common ailments like diabetes, asthma, or allergies. 
Dan Tsai hopes the changes will also help address the crisis in mental health care that has overwhelmed many schools. If we could help provide Medicaid-funded support so you can get kids and youth more access to mental health services, whether they're in crisis or earlier on, without a question, that'll be a win. It's important to remember that Medicaid money can only be spent on kids that it insures. But if those dollars paid for, say, half a school nurse or a psychologist, a local district might be able to swing the other half and so help all students more. There are a few obstacles to making this all happen. First, families have to re-enroll in Medicaid every year to keep their benefits. Also, the money can't pay for a school nurse or psychologist if there's a shortage of qualified people to hire in that district. Finally, in many states, a school can't fully access this funding until the state updates its Medicaid policies. That's something that Medicaid Administrator Dan Tsai acknowledges states have been slow to do. We're establishing a federal framework. If none of the states want to make it more flexible for schools to utilize this, we can't force them to. We compiled data from Medicaid and from the advocacy group Healthy Schools Campaign and counted at least 22 states that have at least partially updated policies. Oregon just finalized its update in May. If states and schools do overcome the obstacles, Tsai says they might get a lot more than the $6 billion that's spent today. I don't think anyone has an exact estimate of should that double, should that triple, but I think we would all love to see over time a really significant increase in the use of school-based Medicaid. Hi, Winnie! When Winnie starts second grade this month, there's a chance she'll get more of the help she needs while she's at school. Portland Public Schools tells NPR that because of the federal changes, it will restart billing Medicaid this year. It's not clear if this means Winnie will get the time she needs with an eye gaze machine and a trained instructor at school. But her mom hopes so. Oh, great. Now we're laughing. Because school is where Winnie loves to be. She's really laughing and smiling. Yes. She loves school. There's just no doubt about it, Winnie. For NPR News, I'm Emily Harris in Portland, Oregon. She co-reported the story with Shasta Kearns-Moore. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. Deborah Becker, WBUR's Deborah Becker, tells us about her visit to Long Island as Boston officials lay out plans for a new public health campus there. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Wagner mercenary group has yet to confirm the death of its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Russia's civil aviation agency says Prigozhin was one of 10 people killed in yesterday's crash of a business jet shortly after it took off from Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow. What we don't have is any official statement IDing Prigozhin's body or confirming his actual death, just as we don't have any confirmation of what caused the crash. And both those factors have fueled all sorts of rumors and conspiracy theories. That said, many of Prigozhin's supporters seem to think he's indeed gone. A makeshift memorial appeared outside the Wagner Center in St. Petersburg last night. 
It was two months ago Prigozhin led a brief mutiny against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia today. Sam Greenglass with member station WABE says Trump was one of 19 people indicted there. This judge will have to juggle up to 19 defendants, plus proceedings in the other court cases Trump's facing. Jury selection could take a long time, too. And then some defendants are trying to move the case from state to federal court. Federal law allows some federal officials charged for conduct under the color of office to remove their cases to federal court. This is NPR News from Washington. A judge in Florida is scheduled to hear arguments today in a lawsuit challenging the state's updated congressional map. Valerie Crowder with member station WFSU says the changes eliminated the lone black majority district in the north of the state. Plaintiffs argue the map should be struck down because it violates a state constitutional provision that protects minority access districts. Cecile Schoon is co-president of the Florida League of Women Voters, one of the groups suing. As time passes, with what we believe to be an illegal map, more harm is occurring to the citizens. Attorneys for the state argue that preserving a congressional district that allows African-American voters in North Florida to elect their candidate of choice would have violated the U.S. Constitution. The case could end up before the Florida Supreme Court later this year. For NPR News, I'm Valerie Crowder in Tallahassee. In Pennsylvania, a standoff between law enforcement and a man barricaded inside a house in Pittsburgh yesterday ended hours later with the suspect dead. It's unclear if the gunman took his own life or if he was shot by officers. Investigators say the suspect fired at officers initially as they tried to serve an eviction notice. Witnesses say they heard what sounded like hundreds of shots being fired during that standoff. Dow futures are down 39 points ahead of the open. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Police Department is promising to clear its current backlog of public records requests within the next six months. The pledge is part of a settlement by the department. Lawyers for Civil Rights sued the city in 2019 over BPD's delayed response to records requests made by its attorneys. The department also agreed to hire someone to help manage the requests. A voter-approved law changing the regulations for the sale of pork products in Massachusetts goes into effect today. The law bans the sale of pork products from pigs raised in cramped conditions. It also applies to pigs raised and processed in other states. Voters passed the measure in 2016. Enforcement has been delayed because of lawsuits from pork producers nationwide. They say the law isn't in line with industry standards. A hospital for dolphins will soon open on Cape Cod. The International Fund for Animal Welfare facility in Orleans will diagnose and treat dolphins that get stranded on the Cape. Researcher Brian Sharp says about two dozen stranded dolphins require medical attention on the Cape each year. He says the hospital will improve their survival rate and also aid environmental research. We can learn a lot about our ocean by monitoring these dolphins and what is causing them to strand. Once the dolphins are rehabilitated, they'll be released back into the ocean. It's 834. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. The Red Sox beat the Astros 7-5 to in 10 innings last night in Houston. The teams will wrap up their series this afternoon. Highs in the mid-70s today, and it'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. Cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the low 60s. A chance of rain overnight, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. We'll have highs near 70. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Thursday, and this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Good morning. Eight Republican candidates stood on stage in Milwaukee last night with the goal of becoming their party's presidential nominee. But the man who is polling far ahead of all of them, former President Donald Trump, indicted former President Donald Trump, was missing. Instead, his interview with Tucker Carlson was being aired on X, formerly known as Twitter, at the same time. Still, the first Republican debate yielded heated exchanges, comedy, and even a dash of policy. Joining us to talk about all this are NPR political correspondent Sarah McCammon, who joins us now from Milwaukee, along with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Good morning to you both. Hey there. Morning. So, Sarah, let's start with you. Donald Trump is the frontrunner in this race, pulling double digits higher than his closest challenger. But he sat this one out, opting for a one-on-one interview instead. So how much did Trump factor in the debate last night? Yeah, Leila, they talked about Trump. To be clear, the candidates spent most of their time talking about other things, important things like the economy, the war in Ukraine, abortion. But of course, there were questions about Trump and the charges he's facing, including allegations of election interference. On that, we heard entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a bit of a rising star in the primary at the moment, vigorously defending Trump. Let's just speak the truth, okay? President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. And then two candidates, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, said they would not support Trump as the nominee if he's convicted on criminal charges. Here's Christie. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of president of the United States. Eric, with so many candidates vying for attention, who made the biggest impression? Well, I think they all struggled at various times to command the stage in a telegenic way. But Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley had some of the strongest moments, especially for a conventional politician, when she challenged Ramaswamy's foreign policy ideas, accusing him of supporting Vladimir Putin. And we've got a clip. Let's listen to it. This guy is a murderer, and you are choosing a murderer over over a pro-American country. 
Yeah, and Ramaswani, in for him, for his case, he almost came off as a surrogate for Trump, articulating the same sort of anti-politician style that Trump used to such great effect in his first debates. But he ran out of steam halfway through the debate and began to look less authentic and more overmatched. Pence also surprised with an occasionally combative style, but he's not well liked among GOP voters. And I think Ron DeSantis didn't hurt himself with any gaffes, but he also didn't dominate the stage the way you would expect the guy running in second place to Trump to do. Sarah, one area of policy difference that came through among the candidates was abortion. It's a topic right. important to the party's base, yet it's one reason why Republicans underperformed in the midterm elections in the wake of that Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. How did that conversation play out on stage? So you heard candidates like former Vice President Mike Pence and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, both social conservatives who are making a strong play for evangelical votes. They called for national abortion restrictions, but Haley has been more cautious about how she frames this issue. She's staked out a position that may be less likely to alienate general election voters. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes. It will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. But Pence has been pushing his Republican rivals to support at least a 15-week national ban if Republicans ever got enough votes. He talked about his religious beliefs and made clear he sees this as a moral issue. To be honest with you, Nikki, you're my friend, but uh, consensus is the opposite of leadership. So we've been talking about the way the candidates performed last night. Let's talk about the people who were asking the questions, Eric. Veteran Fox News correspondent Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, how'd they do? I think they had a lot of trouble controlling the crowd, and they regularly seem to allow the candidates to blow through their time limits for speaking. In a way, this is another norm that Trump has obliterated through his debate performances, creating a situation where the audience seem, doesn't seem to mind if the candidates disregard the rules and talk for as long as they want about whatever they want. Uh, they also asked several questions that might seem odd to anyone who doesn't spend a lot of time watching Fox News coverage, everything from starting the debate with a question about a pop song criticizing Washington politicians to asking about UFOs. So it was interesting. Mm. Eric, um, Trump's pre-recorded interview with Tucker Carlson, former Fox host, was put up five minutes before the debate on Fox News uh, deemed counter-programming. Does that threaten Fox News' status as the most influential outlet in conservative media? Not so far. I mean, Trump's interview was pre-recorded, and I think people could duck into it or out of it whenever they wanted while the debate was live. Uh, but it is notable that the current frontrunner for the GOP nomination is feuding with Fox News. They both need each other in a way because Trump reaches his base through them, and they need his connection to the base. So it'll be interesting to watch these two tiptoe around each other as the nomination process unfolds. So before I let you both go, Sarah, uh, I'd like to end with you. Who had a good night and who fell flat? Well, Ramaswamy did seem to be getting a lot of buzz on social media for whatever that's worth, had some big moments. Pence and Haley had their strong moments. Christie has, has a difficult path as an anti-Trump Republican, but he solidified that image. We'll see how that works for him. And like Eric said, DeSantis, I think, was the big underperformer of the night. He just didn't have a lot of the breakout moments candidates are looking for at this stage. NPR's Sarah McCammon and Eric Deggins, thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. you. Now we meet a high school senior with a side hustle. My name is Mukira Gakange, 
and at Baron Hill Fire Company. I'm a volunteer. I'm a junior firefighter. Makira lives in White Marsh Township, Pennsylvania. I would see a lot of signs out at different stations, and they were all requesting help and volunteers needed. So that was kind of the first thing that drew me to it and made me feel like I could help out. So she told her mom, Betsy Gakange, she wanted to be a firefighter. When Mukira decided that she was going to apply, I felt that me not knowing enough about the fire service, one way for me to kind of educate myself about it would be to also participate and volunteer. And so that's where my journey started. Yeah, her mom joined with her. I was surprised because I had expected to just do it by myself. And she never really talked to me about wanting to do it as well. It was uh, kind of spontaneous. So it was a nice surprise. A kind of spontaneous combustion. After training for the past year, Makira and Betsy are now certified, fighting a trend in which fewer people than in the past serve as volunteer firefighters. We're on fire this morning. It's NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the competition to buy the former trucking company Yellow's network of terminals now that it's in bankruptcy proceedings. It'll grow cloudy today and will be in the mid-70s, low 60s tonight, and there's a chance of rain overnight. Showers and thunderstorms are likely tomorrow. It'll be around 70. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Congresswoman Ayanna Press wants leaders of five major U.S. banks to update her on racial equity pledges they made in 2020. Those institutions made financial pledges to advance racial equity in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Presley sent a letter to the CEOs of the banks, which include J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. She's given the banks until the end of October to provide data showing the work they've done. A Massachusetts woman is suing Star Market because she says the grocery chain kept sending her marketing texts after she opt out. Doing so would be in violation of the Federal Telephone Consumer Protection Act. A company could be ordered to pay up to $1,500 per illegal text under the rule. Star Market officials have not yet commented on the matter. Nonstop flights between Boston and Porto, Portugal, will begin next year. Azores Airlines says the service will begin next June. It'll be the airline's third destination out of Logan Airport. It's 8:45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities, and the Peabody Essex Museum presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Plans for a public health campus on Long Island in Boston Harbor are moving forward. Boston officials and health leaders toured the island yesterday to consider what type of new services might be offered there for addiction, mental health, and homelessness. WBOR's Deborah Becker also visited Long Island yesterday and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So people might remember that Long Island used to be home to programs for addiction, mental health, and homelessness. They were shut down nine years ago when the bridge to the island was deemed unsafe. What do the buildings look like there now? 
deteriorating, and, and frankly, it, it's kind of eerie. Uh, there are more than a dozen buildings on the 35 acres of the island that the Boston Public Health Commission oversees. And as you can imagine, after not being in use for almost a decade, these buildings are in rough shape. There are cracked floors and ceilings, paint peeling off the walls, pieces of ceilings and walls all over the floors, and a lot of debris left behind from the programs that used to be there. There's an old pool table and a former rec room that's just covered in dust and debris, papers, bed linens, an old wheelchair in the middle of a hallway, and a pervasive musty smell. Outside, a lot of overgrown weeds, boarded up windows, and there are sweeping views of Boston in the harbor. Uh, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says that the city is preparing to shore up 11 of the buildings there. There is $40 million set aside in this current budget for stabilization of the buildings, as you have seen if you were walking around uh, and, and getting a sense. There's water damage and, and other uh, changes to the infrastructure that we know will be necessary no matter what programming will be inside. And she expects bids to begin some of the work uh, could go out by the end of this year. And is the goal to create programming similar to the services that were there before the bridge closed? Uh, services for similar issues, but city leaders say they want to be able to offer innovative programming. They say the objective is to coordinate with services that are already available in the city and provide a continuum of care for addiction and mental health treatment. They also want to provide help with housing and vocational training. Here's Boston Health Commissioner Dr. Bazola Ojikutu. What we're looking to do is, is truly reimagine and think about what we can do differently going forward to make sure we actually have a coordinated system of care for people living with substance use disorder and co-occurring mental, mental illness. So what we're looking for is to create something that's truly synergistic with what is available on the mainland. But the specific services, Rupa, and, and how many people might be accommodated, those things are still being worked out and discussed with the provider community. The city expects to begin offering some services on the island in four years and then phase services in afterward. Hmm. As we mentioned, some providers were among those who toured Long Island yesterday. What are they saying? Well, the providers who were there said they're eager to work with the city. Among those on the tour were representatives from Victory Programs, which offered services on Long Island before the bridge closed, MGH Brigham, the Gavin Foundation, Boston Medical Center, St. Francis House, and Bay Cove Human Services. And Bay Cove CEO Lou Josephson said he'd like to see the campus up and running faster than the city's timeline. Four years is too long, right? We love it in a year. But the reality is it's a big campus, it's an old campus, uh, and we're going to work hard as heck to get it done as fast as possible. And earlier this month, the city got a key permit from the state for rebuilding the bridge, and they are planning to begin construction on the new bridge next year. You mentioned that it'll probably be years before Long Island is really up and running. But Boston is facing a critical situation right now with people living in tents and incidents of violence near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, otherwise known as Mass and Cass. What's happening there in the meantime? Well, Mayor Wu is expected to outline what she's calling a new strategy for the Mass and Cass area before the end of this month. Among other things, her strategy is expected to give police more explicit authority to remove tents. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you very much. You're welcome.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on efforts to confirm the death of Russian mercenary chief Yegeny Prigozhin. He was on the list of passengers of a plane that crashed yesterday. Also on the program, celebrations in India after it became the first country to land on the southern polar region of the moon. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. A federal court ruling this month would return voting rights to about 30,000 formerly incarcerated people in Mississippi. There is now a growing firm consensus in the country that forbidding people to vote for the rest of their lives for a crime they commit when they're very young is not appropriate. But the state wants to appeal. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Former President Donald Trump says he'll surrender himself in Georgia today on charges related to an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Russian officials say the head of the mercenary group that led a brief uprising in June was killed in a plane crash there yesterday. And at least three people are dead and five others are injured after a shooting at a Southern California biker bar last night. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It'll gradually grow overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-70s, low 60s tonight with a chance of showers overnight, then rain and maybe a thunderstorm tomorrow. It'll be around 70. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. NVIDIA is killing it. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Behind every AI is a chip, and they are made by NVIDIA and no one else for now. NVIDIA is riding that wave all the way to the bank. It reported earnings and blew away expectations, not just for how it did in the second quarter, but how it expects to do in the third quarter. NVIDIA shares are up 8% in pre-market trading. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. How does ChatGPT or Google's BARD work? Well, for one, they rely on advanced processor chips made by NVIDIA. The company believes it's well-positioned to take advantage of AI advancements, and so far it's being proven right. NVIDIA chips are in high demand as other chip makers like advanced microsystems race to catch up. NVIDIA's lead in AI has tripled its market value, past the $1 trillion mark, adding it to the ranks of a rarefied few. In its latest quarterly results, the company said it doubled revenue from a year ago, nearly $14 billion, and it made a profit of $6 billion. That's nine times its profit from last year during the same period. NVIDIA is forecasting a tripling of sales in its current quarter, and it's planning to buy back $25 billion in stock. Such buybacks boost share prices. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. The former trucking giant known as Yellow is now in bankruptcy proceedings, so it's selling off its parts one by one to pay back creditors. There is one piece of the company that buyers seem particularly interested in. It's terminals. These are large logistical facilities 
where trucks coming into a region then transfer all the stuff they are carrying onto other trucks to make final delivery. Two rival trucking companies have submitted bids each over a billion dollars for Yellow's network of terminals. Marketplace's Henry Up explains why these things are so valuable. Trucking terminals are sort of like regional hub airports, the ones where you might have a layover. It's where all the, the deliveries come in, are consolidated into one load of things going in the same direction. David Carell is a research scientist at MIT. He says it's expensive to build a network of these hubs, but over a century, Yellow did that. It's sort of like a collector's collection all of a sudden hit the market. And it's a good collection. Many of these terminals are in or near metro areas where regulations make it difficult to build new terminals now, says Margaret Kidd, a supply chain and logistics professor at the University of Houston. You just can't go into a major metropolitan area in most parts of the U.S. and create what Yellow has created over the last hundred years. Two companies are bidding for Yellow's full collection of terminals, but they probably won't need them all, says Joe Orschlin, a vice president at commercial real estate firm CBRE. Some of these would certainly be spun off after the acquisition. And he says they'll likely find plenty of eager buyers. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. S&P futures are up four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up nine-tenths of a percent. Dow futures are down two-tenths of a percent. That's 55 points. And another number, $1.4 billion. That is how much the Justice Department says it has seized in stolen COVID-19 relief funds. It says it's charged 3,000 defendants across the country so far. Federal watchdogs and the Small Business Administration disagree over just how much money was lost to fraud. Estimates range from $36 billion to $200 billion. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. If someone's late to the meeting, there's no worries. Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant takes live notes and now answers questions like, what were the action items? Learn more at otter.ai. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. Wildfires in Hawaii, Canada, Algeria, severe flooding in Vermont, record-breaking heat from Arizona to China. This is the changing climate in which we all have to work, which raises a question for employers. To what extent do they have to adapt so their workers cope. Jennifer Moss is a workplace culture strategist and award-winning author. She spoke with my colleague David Brancaccio. I mean, we think right away of road crews or delivery people working outside in very hot conditions, hotter conditions. Crucial issue, right? But it's more than that that you're thinking about. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing this across the board now. When you look at the reports of readiness for global organizations, it shows that around two-thirds of large companies have at least one asset highly exposed to the physical risk of climate change, and yet only one in five companies has a plan in place to adapt to these risks. So we're seeing more and more companies take an effort to get prepared to handle some of these big you know, situations, these crises, but a lot of people are still very unprepared. All right, so a workplace may be air-conditioned on the inside, but that may not help if it's six inches above sea level and at risk for getting flooded out. That That's exactly it. And we're seeing companies realize that they have to change their facilities, get prepared. When you really look at the impact, if they don't, I mean, we're looking at 
for example, Amazon, he is placing a deep threat on retention. They had 100% turnover last year, and they're finding that some of the reasons why people are leaving are because of, of heat and stress. In many business contracts, there's something called the force majeure. If something giant happens, an act of God, you can get out of the contract. But if there is a big natural disaster, a force majeure that happens, and employees can't get into work normally, I don't see anything in many employee handbooks that tells you what the rules are supposed to be. We're starting to see more organizations setting up, you know, emergency savings benefits, but it's a pretty nebulous, you know, there's not a lot of concrete policies. And that's why we need it codified into the, the government. We're seeing a massive competition in talent and we're going to continue to see this talent shortage. And so if you're a company that's really clear in how you are going to support people in these environments, in these dangerous environments, in this future of real impact from climate change, you're going to be the organization that that stands above. Jennifer Moss is an author and researcher specializing in workplace issues. Her books include Unlocking Happiness at Work and The Burnout Epidemic. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, David. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.